0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm in the Scores studios with co-host Joe Wolfon. Yoo-hoo! Oh man, you... Ah, oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, I, for like a half second there, I considered stopping this, telling you we needed to start again, and starting to re-record, because these greetings I'm, I'm are getting running, out of hand. I'm
1: running out of material here, You, you told
0: us that you had a plethora of greetings which is why you were not going to go back to what up which the listeners love and now you're coming out with you
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i'm getting dangerously close to just folding here but uh we soldier on
0: this sounded like a lucille ball impression like i don't even know what that was anyway it's like you know you gotta you gotta keep everybody on their toes yeah speaking of keeping everybody on their (laughs) toes the new york knickerbockers um, always keeping everyone on their toes with their... Are they though? This felt just like nah, super yeah, predictable yeah. to me. I, I was going to say... Keeping always, people
1: on their toes would have been uh, making like a riding dis- it out with Fizdale and, yeah. and just having well like a, a normal, traditionally bad I, I mean, season. I
0: mean, keeping everyone on their toes in the sense that you never know when they're going to do something, right? Like they mm. got off to the start. We were all on our toes waiting for the shoe to drop. We knew it was coming, but it's like when? It came. Friday. I don't, I don't know if they actually did this on a Friday to try to like bury it. Like, cause the Knicks seem to lack the self-awareness, like maybe they actually did think this would be a buried story, but it's not. I wrote about it on Friday as kind of a reactionary feature, and my take on it is essentially this. I don't think David Fisdale did a good job as the Knicks head coach. I think David Fisdale's track record as a head coach in the NBA is spotty at best. He had a solid first season in Memphis. They were injured going into the playoffs. He does the famous take that for data, and every ever since then, everything kind of goes downhill. I can't remember what their record was, a quarter of the way through the season uh, in his second season in Memphis, but it wasn't good. Clash with Marcus Gasol, gets the boot there, comes to New York. In a season and a quarter, the Knicks have no identity on either end of the court. No one seems to know what you know what their offensive identity is, what their defensive schemes are. The young players, I don't want to say they haven't developed, but they also aren't developing clearly under his eyes, so... I don't want to make it like David Fisdale is this, you know... Martyr? Right. Because he's not. He did not do a good job with the Knicks. Having said all that, and this is something I wrote in my piece, he was essentially doomed the day he took a job coaching Steve Mills' Knicks in James Dolan's arena. Steve Mills, you mentioned uh, before we started recording, you wanted to hear me drop some clown, <laughs> clown references. Well, let me tell you, Steve Mills... Among the biggest clown executives in the league right now. This guy should not have a job anywhere near an NBA front office and yet doesn't has,
1: sound like he's going to for a whole lot longer.
0: And that's fair enough, but like this guy's basically failed upwards in that organization and I don't like we don't know what's going on in there. I, I, some people have said it's cuz he's a yes man to James Dolan. I guess that's the case, but I don't know, I'm not in there. I don't know what the case. Is. I don't know if it's just James Dolan not understanding what makes a good basketball executive. I don't know if it's that Steve Mills is just a yes man. What I do know is that he's been a part of almost every brutal mixed front office, and yet when the rest of the front office gets cleaned out, he remains and usually gets promoted to the point where he's now the president. He's got to go. James Dolan obviously isn't going anywhere. This organization is is just a complete joke. And again, I I understand firing David Fisdale. He was not doing a good job. But the fact that he lost his job before Steve Mills did fact that Steve Mills is going to get the opportunity to potentially hire another coach or at least got the opportunity to fire another coach, like all of it is just such a sham. Yeah, um,
1: I I mean, so yeah, I I agree with that on a lot of different fronts. For one thing, I think it's reasonable to say that Fisdale could have done more to establish some sort of a culture or identity and essentially put an imprint on this team and say, this is how we're going to play. It doesn't matter what the personnel is. It doesn't matter about the talent level or how many games we win or lose. This is what we do. This is how we play. This is who we are. And I I agree that you never really got that sense watching the Knicks play. I don't don't think there was a whole lot of carryover stylistically or in terms of identity from one game to the next. And certainly in terms of effort level, that waxed and waned pretty dramatically. And uh, generally, I think there just wasn't a whole lot of it there. I don't know. I mean, how... It's not even just the personnel, but, like, the fact that there are guys just being cycled in and out on these short-term contracts, there's this weird mix of veterans and young players that aren't a stylistic fit, and I just don't know what you're supposed to mold out of that lump of clay exactly. Like, there there isn't any kind of consistency in terms of the sort of rosters that that, that are being put out there on the floor. And I, I'm, like, looking at this roster, and it's just, what like, what are you supposed to make of it? I, I'm, I'm just not entirely sure. And is it David Fisdale's fault that, like, Kevin Knox has been a disappointment or that Dennis Smith Jr. hasn't developed at all? Or is it the fact that... Th- those players haven't really been put in a position to succeed because of the just tenuous fit of the pieces around them. And the fact that they're being blocked by the likes of Marcus Morris and Julius Randle and Bobby Portis and uh, Taj Gibson. and you, The you, four you,
0: guys that they signed. Right. The, and and they, This team signed four power forwards in the span of like two days or a week and then had the audacity to tell us that free agency went as planned and was a success. Yeah, and I think, you know, the big
1: the big thing coming into this season ought to have been, I mean, once they struck out on the free agents, they were obviously angling to sign. It should have been about R.J. Barrett and Mitchell Robinson first and foremost. And, and you know, secondarily, Knox and Dennis Smith, the guys who are, I guess, post-hype, even though Knox is only in his second season and Dennis Smith isn't all that far removed from having a relatively promising rookie year. Those guys are, are, are more post-hype than, than Robinson and obviously Barrett, who's a 19-year-old rookie. But then, again, like you see, Barrett and Robinson were not put in a position where they were going to have a high chance of success because there is very little playmaking on this team. So a lot of it, I think, unfairly is being put on the shoulders of, of RJ, who to me is closer to being a wing than he is to being a point guard. And for Mitchell Robinson, it's like, he needs space, right? Like, you want to be going four out, one in with him as essentially a lob-catching dive man. And instead, he is being kind of mucked up on a crowded floor with guys who can't really space it for him. And he doesn't really have a point guard to deliver him the ball. And I I think, I don't know. I mean, there's any number of places where you can choose to to point the finger, but I, I don't know that this Knicks team really had much of a hope of forming an identity to begin with, given given the way their offseason played out.
0: Yeah, I'm completely with you. I think they needed to field a team that was essentially just a lot of spacing around RJ Barrett and Mitchell Robinson and go from there. And they would have been bad. But there would have been a lot more promise i think there would have been a lot more potential for growth whether it would have grown or not i don't know but at least that would have been uh giving david fisdale a fairer chance to be evaluated you know if they did that and those guys still didn't develop then fine then you can look at david fisdale as like failing in a developmental standpoint but the problem is they didn't put the right team together to foster that development for those young players and in the end david Fisdell didn't really have enough time to to do much and uh, yes he didn't you know establish an identity we mentioned that already and he should have at least done that in a year and a quarter but the the rest of this stuff like he didn't have enough time just with a joke of a team and like if if they went into this season kind of going all in on R.J. Barrett and Mitchell Robinson, do you think they'd be much worse than 4-19? and 19? No, they'd probably be 4-19. and 19. How much worse than 4-19 exactly. exactly. can you be? So they'd probably be in the same spot record-wise, but with more reason for optimism going forward. Yeah, I
1: mean, I I don't really have anything to add to that. I think all this stuff is pretty well chronicled at this point. And oh, have, we,
0: have we talked about the Knicks on this <laughs> podcast before?
1: Yeah, it's like it, the structural issues are deep-rooted, and I, until there's like a change of leadership... And I don't know exactly where that starts. Does it start at the ownership level? Does it just start, uh, you know, at the front office level? Until that happens, I don't think those structural issues are really going to change. And, you know, there's been some reporting out there about how the Knicks are quote-unquote obsessed with Masai Ujiri, who is under contract with the Raptors, I believe, through 2021. But there is maybe some sort of an opt-out in that contract. Uh, The details of it aren't public, so we don't exactly know. But ultimately, I think the next big decision that's going to determine the direction of this franchise is who takes up the torch from Steve Mills when he is no longer the lead basketball decision-maker there. And is that person going to have full autonomy and you know be able to actually craft a basketball team in his or her, her own image? Um, and it's just impossible to say right now whether that's going to be the case. And for now... Uh, I think as a Knicks fan, the best thing you can hope for is to maybe get something in return for some of these vets that you signed in the offseason, be able to ship them out and really refocus this season on developing young players, you know, regardless of how many lumps you have to take along the way, how many losses. I just think that has to be the priority. I mean, this season is already lost. They're not going to make the playoffs. They're not going to be competitive. How many of those vets get traded? How many just get bought out? Uh, I don't think many of them are going to be particularly happy sitting on the bench while the young guys take center stage, but I do think that that is what needs to happen. So you ride it out the rest of the way. I don't know if they let Mike Miller... uh, Different Mike Mike Miller, apparently, than than championship-winning LeBron sidekick Mike Miller, but are they going to let him basically ride out the season as the interim coach or bring somebody else in and sort of start that new direction... Uh, right now, or are they going to wait until they hire a, a new front office boss and let that person bring in their own head coach? Uh, valid questions. All I don't I don't really know. But the, you know what? What can they hope for except to get the number one pick in the coming draft and and hope that that player can kind of tie these disparate parts of the roster with Barrett, Robinson, Knox, Dennis Smith together in some way.
0: Yeah, the Knicks are obsessed with Masai Ujiri and knowing them, they'll end up with Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> um, all right, we're gonna. The point of today's podcast is actually gonna be. I think it was the week before the season started. You and I wrote a piece on the ten X factors or swing players that could kind of swing the season one way or another, and then we did a podcast based on that feature. So we figure we're almost two months into the season, or about a quarter of the way through the season. We wanted to revisit that list um, and those 10 players and see whether they are swinging the season and if they are in which direction. So let's get to this list and let's just start off the top with the guy who was at the top of our list, Ben Simmons. What have you seen from him this season? Does it hold up with him being an X factor? Do you still see him as a guy who can swing the season one way or another going forward?
1: Yes and no. Uh, to me, I don't know that his game has changed an awful lot. I know he's hit two three pointers, which good for him. Uh, it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't really matter until teams start respecting his jump shot, which isn't going to happen this season. I don't know if it's ever going to happen.
0: He's going to have to hit two hundred before that happens.
1: Yeah, and and so, you know, the Sixers' offense has had more or less the struggles that I expected it to have, which is in the half court, it is. Difficult for them to organize themselves and to create space. They rely really heavily on post-ups. Obviously, J.J. Redick isn't there anymore to serve as a release valve, you know, when guys are sagging off, either Simmons or Embiid. And they really just sort of have to play inside out. Um, And Simmons has been good. Like, I think he has become an exceptional defender. And that is obviously crucial to what the Sixers are doing. His ability to either handle assignments on the perimeter or the interior is, uh, you know, really valuable for them. Uh, They've been switching a bunch. And I think, you know, I watched a recent game in which they played against the Raptors and they were switching almost everything on the perimeter. The Raptors had a really hard time dealing with that. Uh, and, And Simmons is a big part of making that work. I just... As far as, as the maybe the, the steps that we thought he might be able to take that could, in theory, push Philly over the top, I don't know that I've seen those steps yet. And I, I just, you know, without, without the jump shot, without the threat of the jump shot, without being able to magnetize defenders when he's playing off the ball, I don't know how much really he can do to help Philly with their specific Problems, And it, that doesn't mean that he can't get better as a player and can't help them in different ways. But I just think that the fact that he is on this particular Sixers team makes it difficult for him to have the impact that he might have, say, in, in like a different roster context.
0: We're only a quarter of the way through the season, and I'm already more convinced than ever that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid can't play together. You know? Or at least can't win at the ultimate level together. Mm-hmm. Play together is maybe a little strong, but I don't think a team with those two guys on the court at the same time for the majority of the game can win at the ultimate level. And that's coming from a guy I picked the Sixers to win the East. Mm-hmm. Um, would
1: you and, Would you revise that prediction if you were doing it again?
0: Honestly, not yet. Yeah. Uh, I still do believe in their overall talent level, their defensive ability, their length. Um, but there's serious concern here for, like on the offensive side, which we knew was going to be the case. And yeah, everyone's making a big deal out of him hitting two threes. And like you said, good for him. But no one's guarding him out there until he hits a lot more of them, until he becomes a legitimate threat. And right now, he's not, he can't even hit free. Like he's still a 58% free throw shooter. Get that in order before you can even become a good three point shooter. The other thing that disappoints me with him is, man, for a guy that is as gifted as he is in terms of passing the ball and playmaking, and for a guy at his size who can see over almost any defense, some of the foolish decisions he makes with the ball in his hand sometimes it just boggles my mind. Like every time I watch him, there's at least one or two times in the game. And most of the times more where I find myself like watching the TV or seeing him in person being like, man, what are you doing? You're too good to be making that mistake. His turnover rate, which was already terrible as first season has gone up this season, even in by advanced metrics. That's not just the raw turnovers thing. He turns the ball over way too much. It is not a coincidence that between him and Joel Embiid, who's also very turnover-prone, the Sixers remain one of the worst turnover teams in the NBA, just as they have been through Brett Brown's entire tenure there. Th- those are just serious issues, and it's disappointing to me that Ben Simmons hasn't been able to rid himself of that. I'm not saying the guy's going to average like less than two turnovers a game, but man, the rate at which he turns the ball over and the rate at which he makes just foolish decisions for someone who should be so much better than that is... It's frustrating for me. I can only imagine what it's like for an actual Sixers fan.
1: But I think a lot of that has to do with how he is forced to play. Like the fact that he does struggle in a half-court context, both because he isn't always being surrounded by, say, four other shooters the way that someone like Giannis is, uh, and the fact that you know it's difficult for him to create for himself in a half-court setting because of the way that defenses play him, When he's handling the ball, oftentimes it is trying to get ahead of steam in transition or semi-transition, where the game is moving extremely quickly, right? And I think that maybe playing that way is going to make a player a little bit more prone to mistakes, because he he can't really be successful in a setting where the game is really grinding to a halt. Like, he needs to thrive in chaos, and I think that
0: maybe that's part of what's leading to all those turnovers. But even that in and of itself, and I don't disagree with you, but then... Then the question just becomes can you win a championship with Ben Simmons as one of your top players when he needs chaos to thrive? He can't thrive when the game is grinded down. Like can you win in the playoffs with that guy?
1: I think you can. I I just think it's a question of fit. And I I tend to agree that I, you know, I don't know that he and Joel Embiid are the right fit in order in order to get there. And I think both of those guys bear some measure of blame for that, but ultimately Embiid is better. So I think you know naturally we're going to focus more on Simmons's shortcomings than Embiid's. I I just think he needs a different he needs a different team context in order to thrive as a team's best or even second best player. And I, I don't yeah I don't know if he's ever going to find that in Philly, and I don't know if the fit between him and Embiid is ever going to work out, but. For all that, and for all that you know that we've talked about the Sixers and how they've struggled and and their issues with their half court offense, I mean they are still seventeen and seven, and a half game out of the second seed in the East, which is essentially where I mean I, I at least expected them to finish at season's end. I expected them to have you know a real adjustment process after their roster got turned over the way that it did in the offseason and losing Jimmy Butler and JJ Redick to tent poles of their offense last season and. I I certainly don't think that they've smoothed out all the kinks, and I think it's going to take a lot longer for that to happen. So the fact that they have had those struggles and that they have looked pretty janky at times and are still, you know, in the position that they're in is probably more a good sign than anything.
0: Okay, let's move on to the next guy on the list, D'Angelo Russell. (laughs) Oh, man. So... Okay, so the. the Guys,
1: he's not swinging much of anything. I, and I don't even really think it has much to do with how well he plays at this point in time. But. Right.
0: But I will say that. So he missed, you know, half of the season so far, almost half of what the season has been so far. He's only played 13 games. The Warriors are obviously the worst team in the West, if not the worst team overall. It's between them and the Knicks. But when he's played, offensively at least, Russell's been fine. He's averaging 22 points and six assists. On slightly above average efficiencies, shooting 50% from two, 35% from three. He's been fine offensively. The team is bad. We know his defensive shortcomings. The reason I still think he's somewhat of a swing guy is as a trade candidate. He could be traded as of December 15th, which is this week. Coming into the season, I remained perplexed as to why the Warriors made this deal. I thought they gave up too much for a guy that was a non-star, like a, not a real star, not a winning star. And I thought the only way it made sense is if they did eventually flip him and get legitimate assets that could extend their window going forward. This season is lost for them. If Russell's this guy and stays healthy, I think there will be teams that will give up legitimate assets to get him into their system. Which teams? Which teams? you mentioned Minnesota. Other than that, I don't know.
1: Like what, what are the warriors? I mean, for me, if I'm the warriors in that deal, I want Covington back. And if I'm the wolves, I got to think pretty long and hard. I wouldn't do that that if I'm the wolves,
0: I wouldn't do that. But I always trust that there's like at least one or two foolish front offices, like, or desperate teams that just want the allure and the illusion of a star that they can maybe sell to their fans and sell a couple hundred extra seats a game. I don't know. Like, There's got to be teams like that out there that will at least sniff around on D'Angelo. And so I still do see him as a swing candidate if if only as a trade chip. Because obviously he's not swinging anything for the Warriors. They're right. terrible. They're going to finish with one of the two worst records in the
1: league. Um, one thing I'll say, his free throw rate has more than doubled. And that was absolutely something that he, he needed to improve upon from last season. And that is why his true shooting percentage has basically been bumped up to league average, but it is still league average. And that's on 32% usage. And obviously this Warriors team, they don't have anything else going on offensively. Like they need that from him, but you're still talking about a high volume middling efficiency player who is going to dominate the ball and be a clear minus at the defensive end of the floor. And I don't know how many, if any teams in the league are going to be willing to roll the dice on that guy at his price point and given what it probably would take to acquire him and you know that yeah again the two teams that I that I have sort of long thought might be realistic fits are the the Timberwolves and the Magic I mean the Magic like their point guard position I guess has been a big question mark and, and a point of concern for a while but given the growth that they've seen from Markel Fultz I don't know if they want to bring in a player that's going to maybe get in the way of that. And especially given the the way that Evan Fournier has played this season, like he's been absolutely fantastic. And I, and I don't know if bringing in another guy who's going to take the ball out of his hands. And like Fournier is at like 63%
0: true shooting this year. So uh, pending free agent, by the way, yeah. potential free agent. I think he can, uh, I think he might have a player option or is he just a straight free agent?
1: Um, I don't know, but if he, if he has a player option, I would expect him to opt out given the way that he's playing. Um, So, yeah, I I just don't know. I I think, and for Minnesota, I mean, maybe it's worth it for them just because it's not like they're, you know, playing like gangbusters with Covington. Uh, Their defense has actually been better than their offense this season, and that's been a big part of why they're kind of hovering around 500 and in the mix for one of those last... West playoff spots, but I think they can realistically look at the situation and say, okay, how far are we going with Covington anyway? This is maybe a high upside play that might lower their floor and could turn out to be a disaster. But the upside play is, I mean, maybe the pick and roll with D'Angelo and Carl Towns, who are good friends and would probably really enjoy playing together is just lights out and they can outscore teams and, you lose Covington, but you actually still have enough defensive talent on the wing, you know, between a Koji and I don't know who else, (laughs) but, but I guess you hope that that's, you know, you still have enough to get by defensively while goosing your offense to the point that uh, you're a solid playoff team. Um, I mean, that's, that's really the only way I can see that playing out. And then between Teagues and Covington's salaries, you have enough there to match and maybe the Warriors consider that enough, but it's tough to find a workable deal for Russell, and I just—I'm not necessarily saying right now that the Warriors are going to come to regret this move, but I, given what it cost them in terms of the draft capital and the fact that they had to let go of Iguodala in order to get it done, I don't know that they're going to recoup what they gave up in the bargain.
0: Yeah, to me, it was a panic move at the time, and it still looks like it. like everyone just assumed, well, it's the Warriors, so you know, light years ahead. They're just thinking a couple steps ahead of everyone. It's like, no, maybe you know, they're also capable of making mistakes too. And I think they made a panic move because mm-hmm. they lost a transcendent talent in free agency. Do you think... Is there anything
1: that the Knicks have that would interest the (laughs) Warriors? Because I I was saying, like, the Knicks don't have any playmaking. And and Russell, you know, for all his warts, is a really good passer. And that's
0: what I'm saying. Like, offensively, he's having a fine season. He's a defensive minus. We know that. Like, you can survive with that guy on your team depending on what's around him. If he's your best player, no, you're terrible. Ugh... I mean, other than RJ and Mitchell Robinson, who the Knicks obviously will not give up for mm-hmm. D'Angelo Russell, like, what do they have? I don't
1: know. I mean, we know they could cobble the salaries together. Yeah, that's um, not an issue. But so, can g- they cobble those salaries together with like one semi intriguing prospect? And are they willing to throw? I wouldn't be willing to throw in a, in a first rounder. The thing if is, I was though, if you're Knicks.
0: the Warriors, like, I don't think you have to rush to move Russell, right? Like. Yeah, that's After true. what you gave up in order to bring him in, mm-hmm. I don't think you want to give him up just for some expiring salary. Yeah, you pattern. don't trade him just for the sake of right. trading him, especially because since you, this is a lost season anyway. And you, he's on the books for, what, four years? Yes. Like You can trade him in the summer. You can trade him next season and, and still add to—
1: But is it a depreciating asset, and then do you have to worry about—
0: Potentially. Mm-hmm. But can it depreciate any more than some, like, Knicks salary filler and a middling Knicks prospect? Fair right? enough. Um, Before we move on to the next guy on the list Who's Jamal Murray Just wanted to add So Evan Fournier $17.1 million player option for next year Yeah he's opting out He's opting out And probably going to get paid as a free agent Because he's having a fine year Uh, Not a swing player though Swing player on our list Jamal Murray Really interesting
1: uh, The way this season has gone for him Because um, Basically the same guy offensively
0: so before you go on, can I, because you said, are you looking at his stats right now when you I'm say not, I'm not, basically but, the same guy offensively? I'm
1: not, but go ahead.
0: Last season in 32.6 minutes per game, 18.2 points. This season in 32.8 minutes per game, 18.2 points. Last season, 4.8 assists. This season, 4.8 assists. Rebounds, 4.2, 4.3. Field goal percentage, 43.7 last year, 43.7 this year. It's like actually pretty insane how Jamal Murray's just basically having statistically the exact same year as last year
1: offensively. Offensively. And yes. this is what I think is interesting. Um he's looked to me like the pretty much the exact same guy on offense and the stats that you just mentioned bear that out. He has been miles better defensively and that has really stuck out to me like I I wrote a piece um a week ago diving into what had made the Nuggets defense so successful. And I was pretty surprised to find how, how much a part of that he was. Um, And I think a big part of it is that like their guards have just done an excellent job getting into the ball uh, and applying pressure on the perimeter. He is way more active with his hands, getting deflections. You mentioned his steals are up. They're actually way up. Um, And, Just his activity level is in a completely different place than it's been in the past. And I think, you know, if you were pointing to what has really driven the Nuggets defensive success, I I would put guys like Paul Millsap and Gary Harris above Murray as far as, you know, who has had the biggest impact there. But Murray has absolutely been a part of it. Um, And that's not just kind of playing on the ball, but it's the Nuggets get themselves in rotation a lot because they do bring two to the ball quite frequently. Murray's rotations have been excellent. He has made very few mistakes. And I think that's a really important step in his development. And, and ultimately, you know, the offensive development I think is going to have to come if he's going to help the Nuggets get to where they're trying to go. But to see him make those kind of strides on the other side of the ball is really encouraging to me.
0: At the end of the day, any any issues the Nuggets have had to me on the offensive side wouldn't be about As much Jamal Murray stagnating as it would be about the issues we know Jokic has had Mm -hmm. on the offensive end at least this season. So I don't really pin too much on Jamal Murray. I think if he is what he is right now offensively it's disappointing in the sense that you probably expect a little more from him. His ceiling was higher than this but if he's this with the defensive improvements you're talking about on a team that is the number two defensive team in the league right now you know that's still a very above average young player who you can continue to go forward with and you know, maybe in in the true definition of a swing player, it doesn't seem like it, but there's still a lot of season left, and if he can maintain this effort on the defensive end, you know, his offense is always capable of coming in waves, and we've seen this from him throughout his career. Like, traditionally, he starts off terribly and then picks it up as the season goes on and usually mm-hmm. he has at least one tear in there. He hasn't really had that tear yet this season, but he also hasn't had the full-on slump he usually starts the year with, so I think there'll be a part of this season at the very least that one part, where Jamal Murray goes off offensively, Mm -hmm. and I hope he can do that while maintaining what he's doing on the defensive end, because at that point, then you've got, like, a borderline all-star on a very good team that has, for the most part, continued to win, despite not playing up to their capabilities.
1: Yeah, and, you know, he's another guy who I would like to see take the steps that D'Angelo Russell has taken, in terms of just getting to the free-throw line a little bit more. Like, he's notoriously had a very low free-throw rate, and... You know, like, he's fairly slight of frame, so I understand him not necessarily wanting to take that pounding inside and he plays a little bit more on the perimeter. His game is more outside-in oriented, um, and that's always worked for him when playing alongside Jokic. But I just think if he wants to goose his efficiency, like, get into the line is going to be a viable way to do that. And I think he's shifty enough, and his pull-up jumper is enough of a threat that he could do a much better job of getting defenders off balance and using that uh, to draw contact. And it's just not really part of his game right now. And maybe it won't be this season, but looking kind of toward the future and sort of what that five-year, $180 million contract is going to look like and how it's going to age, I think that needs to become a part of his game at some point in time.
0: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Next guy on the list, I don't want to spend too much time on him because we've spent a whole podcast on the Raptors last week. We've talked a lot of Siakam already this season. I'll simply say that I think he's fit the bill as a swing guy. Absolutely. And more than that. He's had a rough week. Seems to be hitting a bit of a wall as he adjusts to life as the number one option and, and the, all the attention defenses are giving him. But for the most part, he's been outstanding. 24.5 points, 8 rebounds, 3.6 assists, effective field percentage of 51.4. He's shooting the three as he did last year, 36%. He's been pretty phenomenal. And the amount of effort he's exuding on the defensive end is just unbelievable. The Raptors are 16-7 and after the loss of Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green. I mean, you can't really ask for much more from Pascal Siakam in terms of swinging his team season.
1: Yeah, I think the the ways in which he's struggled, particularly lately, are totally predictable. Uh, he's shouldering an immense offensive load, and did so especially while Kyle Lowry was out of the lineup. So naturally, his efficiency has taken a pretty significant hit. I think especially in the last couple of weeks, we've started to see, I don't I don't know if it's him physically breaking down, mentally breaking down. And breaking down really isn't the right way to put it, but just slowing down, I guess. he struggled. Uh, and I think these are the struggles I expected him to have at the very start of the season, where I thought there would be an adjustment to him being the number one guy, where defenses are keying in on him, and he was having to create for himself. And he just... He, he started the season like a house of fire. Nobody could stop him. He was getting whatever he wanted in the post. And all of a sudden... That has started to wane and he hasn't really been able to attack mismatches, which is why I think, you know, I was talking about the Sixers and how their switching defense had kind of managed to vex the Raptors. The Raptors in general have struggled against switching defenses lately, and that is essentially because Siakam has not been able to take advantage of mismatches. And and he really is their best switch buster by far. And if he's not able to do that, then Nobody else on the roster really can. And I think, you know, when that's happening, their offense is just going to kind of grind to a halt. So these are things that I expected to be part of his learning curve. It's just funny, like, it wasn't happening at the start of the season and we're seeing it now. And he maybe set the expectations for himself a little bit too high with how he started the season.
0: He looked like a MVP candidate and all-defensive team member for the better part of the quarter of the season. I don't think he'll be able to keep that up quite all season. But, no.
1: but he's still... Playing like an all-star yes, Without a doubt He's an all-star um, His defense like you said I mean it's come and gone The defense uh, Which again Is another thing That I expected to happen Given the increased load That he was going to be carrying At the offensive end But for the most part I think it's been very very solid And if you have uh, You know an all-star player Who is still learning And getting better all the time And is still giving More or less maximum effort At the defensive end of the floor I think you got to be Pretty happy with that If you're the Raptors
0: Karis LeVert was next on our list. He's only played nine games. He's been hurt. Yeah.
1: And he was not good he in those wasn't. nine he, games He was either.
0: disappointing in the first nine games. The Nets as a whole were. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been a lot better since Kyrie went down. Spencer Dinwiddie's playing great. I just don't know how much time we should devote to a guy who's only played nine games and hasn't played in like a month now. Yeah, uh,
1: um, yeah I mean, disappointing on multiple fronts. Uh, dis- I, I'm disappointed with the way that he played in those nine games. Obviously, it's disappointing that he got injured again. Uh, and it just... it's hard sometimes to tie these injuries together or say that a player is injury prone when he is not injuring the same parts of his body. And sometimes they're happening, you know, on freak incidents where you wouldn't necessarily expect recurrence. But the fact is that Levert has had a really, really difficult time staying on the floor. Uh, And like the thumb injury that he has now has nothing to do with the ankle injury he suffered last year, but he's got to play a full season at some point in time. And I I just, I worry, you know, not only about all the time that he's missed, but just about the the way that it's interrupting his rhythm and how hard that must be for him to start to get comfortable and get to a place where, you know, he feels like the game is slowing down for him and everything's working. Because it seems like any time that's happened, he's gotten injured. And obviously... I'm not so surprised, I guess, that he started out slow because I do think it's a big adjustment for him playing next to someone like Kyrie and just sort of the different ways that the team around him has changed. And then for him to go down before he could really find his way into a rhythm uh, just compounds that disappointment.
0: Speaking of disappointment, Kyle Kuzma. Uh,
1: Yeah, I I mean, I'll let you start on this one because I think you... It was you who wanted to, to yeah. put him in this category, um, so let's hear your thoughts on that Look, situation. I thought it was
0: important, obviously, for the Lakers to get something out of Kuzma this season because you know it had been well documented that he was the guy that the Lakers apparently, reportedly did not want to include. I'm sure they would have if they absolutely had to, but they preferred not include him. And in a way, it sounded through reports that they they kind of valued him more than Brandon Ingram. Obviously, very easy in hindsight to say that was crazy, but that was crazy because Brandon Ingram's having a heck of an offensive season for a bad Pelicans team, but still, a heck of an offensive season. Kyle Kuzma has looked just out of sorts, and I thought being the clear-cut, like, number three guy most nights behind two legit superstars would be exactly how Kyle Kuzma could thrive. You know, he's a good shooter, he can attack off the bounce, good spot-up guy, I just thought like he fit very well on a team that was going to be dominated by you know, what we thought were going to be LeBron James, Anthony Davis, pick and rolls. It has gone to crap. He's averaging 11 points. Efficiency has gone down. He's not rebounding the ball. He's not moving the ball. He looks lost defensively. I know he's never been a great defensive player, but on a team that's been solid defensively, he has not been... He just, in so many ways, you watch the games and it's like, you if you just watch Kuzma, you can not see how he is impacting this team's success at all. In fact, it's the opposite. He's been one of the few weak links on an otherwise great Lakers team so far. And he's legitimately losing minutes right now to Alex Caruso. That's not a joke. I know everyone jokes about Alex Caruso, who gets very overhyped by the media. Mm -hmm. But Alex Caruso is stealing minutes from Kyle Kuzma right now. From the guy that they didn't want to include in the deal for Anthony Davis. Yeah. Well,
1: I I don't know how surprised I actually am by any of this, to be honest. Really? Like
0: Like this bad?
1: Well, he starts the season with that stress reaction in his foot. And I'm sure that that has had something to do with his slow start. He's shaking off some rust. He didn't, you know, get a full training camp in. So, and, and then there's, you know, the fact that he's just not a very good fit with this roster. Like, He's playing with two guys in, in AD and LeBron whose best position. I mean, we can quibble over whether Davis' best position is the four or the five, but Davis wants to play the four. LeBron is best at the four. Kuzma is best at the four. So I think it's tough to find, to find where he fits on this team. And, and to go back to your point about how they seem to favor him over Brandon Ingram, I think Ingram would have been a tough fit on this team as well. And I certainly don't think he would be having nearly the season that he's having in New Orleans if he was on the Lakers. I think it's tough as a role player that wants to spread his wings a little bit more to find where you fit on a team with with a player as ball dominant as LeBron is and then, you know, another offensive superstar in Davis. Like, how exactly do you contribute if you don't want to just be a straight spot-up guy? Um, and I think Kuzma's still sort of figuring that out, and he's still figuring out what he is capable of off of the dribble – and he's still figuring out, you know, w- whether he can be more, essentially, than just a 3 and D guy. And obviously, the D is... <laughs> yeah, 3 and what? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think he's working harder at that end of the floor, to be honest. Like, I, I guess if we're talking about him as a swing guy, the big issue is, like, the Lakers have been awesome. And almost none of their success has anything to do with Kuzma. But I don't think... I, I, like, I expect him to be better than he's been as the season goes along. Um, I just don't think that he is the swing piece that's going to determine the success that they have going forward.
0: The next guy on the list was Jason Tatum. The interesting thing about this
1: is I actually feel like the swing guy for Boston has turned out to be Jalen Brown. Yes, agreed. Um, I do think Tatum has been better. I do think he's made a jump in some areas, especially at the defensive end. I think he's been great. To me, Brown has made the bigger leap. And in hindsight, maybe he should have been the guy on this list, or maybe they should have been there in tandem. They've both been good. But, yeah, again, Tatum, uh, he has increased his rate of three-point attempts. Um, He has gotten to the basket a little bit more. He has cut out some of the bad shots from his diet, although a lot of them are still there. And... To be honest, he hasn't shot the ball particularly well. He's at forty-four percent from two-point range, uh, and hasn't been especially efficient offensively. The playmaking, which I think is an area where I have really wanted to see him grow, hasn't exactly come along. But he's done enough as a scorer and as a defender, I think, to to help the Celtics team really soar. And um, you know, looking looking ahead to the rest of the season, I think. I don't know after after Siakam uh, and maybe Sabonis, who who we'll talk about in a bit, but he might be the guy on this list who I actually think has has proven to be a swing player in the way that we expected at the start of the season. Interesting. What do you think?
0: Yeah, no, I think I think he's been solid. I think the efficiency kind of is what it is given his shot selection and and the shot selection, I guess, is still disappointing. I remember looking earlier in the season. And he had started to cut out a lot of the the mid-range and long twos and started to take more threes and get to the rim more. And the percentages just weren't there in terms of how well he was shooting it from those ranges. And I thought, okay, as long as he keeps this shot diet and keeps trending in this direction, the percentages will come up and it'll be great. And I don't know. I don't know if it was just maybe fool's gold and he was never going to stick to it all year or maybe the fact that he wasn't shooting well from three and was, for whatever reason, not finishing at the rim made him resort back to the inefficient shot diet he's now got again but that's been disappointing for me because I feel like if he would have just stuck with that shot diet he had through the first few weeks of the season regression would have come in a positive way for him he was taking the right shots and I don't know why he settled back into this I I don't know if you want to call it a groove but it's not a groove um, of his old shot diet and the Kobe shot diet that that we saw last season that's been disappointing but I think overall his play has been good I think he's been underrated defensively. I think he's been really good. He's been excellent. Yeah. And I know you mentioned Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown's had the better year. I think those two in tandem in general have had very promising seasons for the Celtics.
1: Totally. And I mean, we're not here to talk about Jalen Brown, but I do think he deserves a ton of credit for where he has taken his game this year after I kind of panned the extension that he signed. So did I. And I mean, if this first couple of months is any indication he's going to be worth every penny um, because his defensive versatility is outstanding. And I think he's making strides as far as creating for himself, creating for others um, along with Tatum uh, is still, you know, a, a shortcoming of his, but being able to create his own shot, I think is a really important step for him. And, and he's shown the ability to do that this year, shooting almost 38% from three, Shooting fifty-seven percent from two, and he—I mean—he's been a really efficient scorer. And you couple that with the way that he's been able to defend, and and what he has meant to that that Celtics defense, which has been, I think, better than either of us expected. A huge part of that has been, you know, how often they switch and how they're able to bamboozle opposing teams with the the different matchups that they can give them. Brown and Tatum's switchability has just been an enormous part of that. Um, and the reason that their their smaller lineups have worked so well uh, is thanks in large part to those guys' ability to fill in uh, at the forward positions.
0: The next guy in our list, I think, is a really interesting one. Chris Saps, Porzingis.
1: I mean, this is, you know, another one that we've kind of mentioned uh, in previous episodes, how we thought that in order for the Mavs to hit their ceiling, and maybe, I mean, this is, I guess, still true, but in order for the Mavs to become a playoff team this year, Porzingis was going to have to be the guy that he was before he got injured. And, that hasn't been the case on either front. Uh, a, Porzingis has not been that guy. And B, the Mavericks look unbelievable anyway because Doncic has just gone totally supernova. And I do wonder like, how much of this has to do with the role that Porzingis is now playing. It, does that put a cap, essentially, on how good he can be? He, he isn't really being given the chance to spread his wings because so often he's just being used as a guy spotting up uh, and spacing the floor for Doncic, which on its own is really valuable and really important. Without that, I don't know that Doncic could be having the season that he's having. And like just by virtue of standing there and posing the threat of, I don't know what he's at, but like a 39% three-point shooter and having that guy also be able to protect the rim at the other end of the floor, like that's been really important for Dallas. For Porzingis individually, The production hasn't really been there. We've talked about his struggles from two-point range, how he just can't really impose his will. As a post-up guy, he has not been a particularly good rebounder. He is vulnerable against teams that want to switch when he's involved in the pick and roll, just because he can't do a whole lot against smaller defenders in the post. He tends to settle for jump shots and fadeaways, and they just haven't been particularly effective. He's shooting, like last I checked, I think like 42% from two-point range. So... Those are all concerns and things I'm sure that the Mavericks would like for him to be doing better. But just as far as how well it's worked out with him being in Dallas, I think the results have sort of spoken for themselves. Like he has been a positive, like just his presence and his ability to provide that stretch, I think has been really important.
0: I think he's been a below average offensive player, especially for a kind of a high usage guy still. And I think he's been an absolutely elite defensively. I think that's probably okay for the Mavs, as you mentioned. Given what Doncic is doing on the offensive end right now, I think what Porzingis is at this point of his recovery is fine. I did not think he would be this bad offensively to start, but I also didn't think he would regain this defensive presence immediately. I mean, he might be playing the best defense of his life coming off of, what, 20 months off or whatever it was. You look at guys who have defended uh, at least four attempts at the rim per game and have played about half of their team's minutes. There's 59 of those guys in the league and Porzingis would be top 10 in rim protection. Opponents are shooting 50% on the nose against him at the rim and he's defending 6.7 attempts a game there, which is a lot. He, The Mavs rely on him. His rim protection has been huge for them mobility wise i think he's he's fine defensively maybe he's not taking the smartest shots that's a little concerning but i do think at some point he's too talented for him to be this bad offensively and maybe he'll never be the 20 to 25 point per game two-way star it looked like he was going to be in new york but on a team with luca Freak and Doncic, she doesn't have to do that i'm sure he's just happy to be playing pro ball again after being out for almost two years i think all in all it's a success despite what the offense looks like because as you mentioned, it's working out, right? And I think there is still a, a, a higher ceiling for him to get to even this season because I do think the offense will come at least more than it's coming right now.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't actually realize just how bad he's been shooting. He's oh, he's been terrible. He's under forty percent, under forty percent from the field, and just thirty four percent from three. Where you know, early in the season when we were talking about him, he was up at thirty nine percent from deep, and
0: they're also ten points per one hundred possessions or worse with him on the floor.
1: Yeah, and and that was what I was going to say. It was like as much as Maybe I'm just thinking anecdotally when I'm talking about, you know, how his presence has helped open things up for Doncic because Doncic on court with Porzingis, uh, plus 5.5 net rating, which is good. Doncic on floor without Porzingis, plus 17.3. So maybe that pairing isn't working out (laughs) quite as well as in my head it seemed to be.
0: Well, you want a situation that's not working out quite as well as uh, you thought it might. How about the San Antonio Spurs, which is where we're going because the next guy on our list was DeJounte Murray. Yikes.
1: Big yikes. Um, I mean, not really from his perspective. I actually think he's been fine. But he hasn't moved the needle for him for the Spurs defensively, uh, which is really what I anticipated happening this season. And I think the reason that he was on this list is we looked at a Spurs team that had been sixth in offense last year and won 48 games, and was really only held back by the fact that it was so poor at the defensive end of the floor, you expect maybe there to be some struggles integrating Murray offensively, but I definitely thought that he was going to vastly improve the spurs of the defensive end, and that just hasn't happened. And, you know, a couple weeks back, I basically said I, I felt like he was a smaller version of Ben Simmons. I mean, they, they just, again, like this goes back to, to something we've said a few times, but like, And it's true of Simmons as well, right? Like, I think in order for him to thrive, he needs a team to essentially be built around him. And that obviously isn't the case with the Spurs right now. I don't think this roster is at all built to optimize his skills. And I think that has shown. Um, And they have not been good with him on the floor. I do think his defense has still been very good. Uh, I just think given the lack of defensive talent around him, the fact that he hasn't really gotten to play in the backcourt with Derek White at all, the fact that it's been a tenuous offensive fit with him and, and the non-shooters around him ha- has There's just...
0: Murray shooting 19% from three.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think obviously as far as him being a swing player, the Spurs, you know, like some of the other teams we've talked about, it would take a lot more to actually swing uh, the direction that this team is headed.
0: He's been fine defensively on a bad defensive team, but my disappointment is I thought, and maybe this was unfair of us, to expect you know, the same level of blow-up everyone expected from him last year. Expect that this year when he missed all of last year with a torn ACL. you know, I just mentioned how I got to give Christoph Porzingis more time to find his game offensively, and that's a guy that was already a number one option and a good offensive player. DeJounte Murray was not a number one option and had not really established himself as a Solid NBA offensive player. So in fairness, probably going to give him more time to round into form on that end. But I think you can acknowledge that while still acknowledging the fact that he has been bad and disappointing on that end of the floor for an overall bad and disappointing team. He's in year four now, although it's really only year three because he missed all of last year. I just don't know if at a certain point soon, maybe you just accept that this is what DeJounte Murray is. Like, I know it is still early in his career, but you know he's 23. It's his third slash fourth season in the NBA. There haven't really been signs of growth on the offensive end other than a stretch a couple of years ago. Like, Is it possible this is just what he is? And we just expected a lot more because of one hot stretch and the fact that he's a spur and these things usually tend to go their way.
1: I don't necessarily think so. I think maybe he's not going to be a superstar, right? And ultimately, he might just be more of a defensive specialist who provides a lot of stuff at the offensive end, isn't necessarily an offensive star, but like he's an excellent rebounder for his position. He has been really good at pushing the pace and getting the Spurs out in transition, which is something I feel like their offense needs a lot of the time when it gets bogged down in the half court. Um, You know, I think he's always going to be a good open floor player Uh, and his ability to get to the basket, his ability to, uh, you know, give them, Extra possessions by crashing the offensive glass, which is something that Popovich has historically been averse to, but he's given Murray license to crash the offensive glass. Uh, all of those things can be valuable. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that, like, look, this guy is not going to be an offensive star, but that doesn't mean that he can't, you know, be an exceptionally valuable player. I just. I want to wait until he's playing a fully healthy season where he's not being held back by a minutes limit that's keeping him to, like, 23 minutes a game, uh, which he has been this season. And the fact that they had to move him out of the starting lineup is obviously a little bit worrisome. But again, I think that has more to do with the fact that they needed more shooting in the starting lineup, and that doesn't really have anything to do with him. I mean, it has something to do with him because he's not providing the (laughs) shooting, but...
0: But it's not his fault that the guys around him also can't shoot.
1: Right, and I I think they have to know that. And again, like start to construct this roster around him as opposed to trying to shoehorn him into a roster that's going to make him a tenuous fit.
0: All right, last one. And given who it is and the teeny place for I'm basically just going to let you take this. I'm going to walk out of the studio. You can <laughs> take the mic the rest of the way. Demonte Sabonis of the Indiana Pacers. Your Indiana Pacers, Joe. Man, the Pacers have been pretty good. They've been great. Uh,
1: and they have been aided by a very soft schedule. Still going to win. But they are 15-8. and eight. They have done exactly what they needed to do, which is keep their heads above water, give themselves a little bit of a cushion and some margin for error until Oladipo gets back. And again, we don't know what Oladipo is going to look like when he comes back. We don't know how much he's going to raise their ceiling. But as far as what they've been able to do without him, I think it's pretty damn impressive. And I think
0: Turner missed some time. Yep. Yep. Brogdon missed some time. Yeah, so,
1: Lamb missed a bunch yeah, of time. Like, they're, I think, second in the league in man games lost after the Warriors so far this season. And maybe May the, McMillan maybe does the Pelicans, not get enough
0: credit for the job he's done in the
1: 100% agree. I mean, they, they had a ton of roster turnover in the offseason, too. And they, you know, stylistically, in some ways, they're sort of proudly anti modern. Uh, they don't hunt three point shots the way that some teams do. They're a little bit more selective in in the threes that they do take. Uh, They shoot a lot of mid-rangers. They don't switch a lot defensively, and that can put a lot of strain on guys as far as staying attached, going around screens. And they play a drop coverage for the most part, and that can burn them sometimes when they go up against teams with good pull-up shooters or teams that like to run a lot of Spain pick and roll. They get back screened. But, you know, for the most part, uh, they have been able to make it work, and they're top 10 at the defensive end, and they're middle of the pack offensively. Brogdon has been outstanding. But Sabonis, I think, is the guy who has really made it all work, um, and he's done that by he's not doing a ton of things differently than he did them last season. But I do think he's added like a few more one and two dribble moves to his package, where you can really just dump the ball into him and expect him to go and get you a bucket. His ability to play make from the elbows, um, his ability to play make on the short roll, and his ability to just inhale rebounds at either end of the floor has been so crucial to what they do. And also, his screen setting, which is something I wrote about last year.
0: He might be the best in the league.
1: He is certainly up there. Uh, and I don't... Like, I think he's second in screen assist, but even without, like, uh, that number to essentially quantify the value that those screens are giving him, like, the Pacers lack individual shot creation. Um, and Brogdon has has really given them that uh, where they've needed it without Oladipo. But even so, like beyond that, it would be really difficult for this team to create space and create baskets in the half court. If Sabonis wasn't there to carve out space with his screens and his ability to disguise them, flip the direction and maybe use some, some subtle grabbing techniques in order to make those screens really stick and create space for the guards on that team. Uh, That's just been so valuable to keeping that team's offense humming and So as far as swing players go, I mean, if they get Oladipo back and he's the guy that he was before he got injured, to me, this this is absolutely a team that's right there with the other top five teams in the East. I mean, I think Milwaukee right now is in a category by themselves, but the teams after Milwaukee in Philly, Boston, Toronto, Miami, I think Indiana's right there in that group. And Sabonis to me is the guy Along with Brogdon, who's really made that possible.
0: Yeah, essentially 18 points, 14 rebounds, and 4 assists on a team like you mentioned that's been missing a lot of guys, missing their best player. He's kept them more than just afloat. He's been their best overall player. Good two-way player, even though he's not, you know, a stretch player on the offensive end. He does so many things offensively, like his screen setting, that help on that end. He's 16th in the league in minutes per game. Like, this team is really relying on him. And, And one thing I haven't mentioned yet this season, I know I mentioned it a lot last season... Um, I let our listeners know and like you know every year I do that exercise where at the end of every night I between the games I've watched box scores advanced stats I try to make a note of who the best player on the floor was in every single game that's played and I kind of keep a running tally as the season goes on no surprise Giannis for the second year in a row right now is leading it but Sabonis has already surpassed his total from last season on the list I had in terms of the amount of times he was the best player on the floor he's up to seven times so far this season for my tally, that's the same amount as Nikola Jokic and Pascal Siakam. So I'm not saying he's as good as those guys. That's kind of the level he's brought himself to. And I don't want to make this a Sabonis-Turner debate because we're not here for that. But I don't think it's ever been clearer which one of those guys, if they did have to choose one, should be the one they choose. And I don't know that they do
1: necessarily. Like, that's fine. They, they have been more successful playing those two guys together than they have been in the past. Uh, They are staggering them more now than they were at the start of the season when they were overlapping for over 20 minutes a game. I think both of them have been better individually than they have been together. I think Sabonis is a a lot more natural as a center who can drop and stay close to the basket as opposed to somebody who's chasing guys out on the perimeter. But I think he's looked more comfortable than I expected him to when he is coming out to the perimeter. Uh, They use him to hedge. He's been pretty effective at doing that. Uh, You know, you don't, Necessarily want to see him chasing stretchier power forwards out there when he could be kind of hanging back and protecting the basket and rebounding the ball, which is really what he's best at at the end of the day. But when he's been asked to play that role, I think he's done it pretty damn well, uh, and I think he deserves a ton of credit for his adaptability and everything that he has been willing to do in order to uh, to keep the Pacers afloat.
0: All right, before we go, you got anything you want to uh, plug this week? Anything? Listeners should look out for features you got going. Something that's already up. Something coming later in the week.
1: Uh, I am working on a piece about the piece, uh, <laughs> a, pace about the piecers, a piece about the Pacers, a piece about the Pacers that uh, should be dropping probably tomorrow. Um, so we can look out for that. Uh, I know you and I will both be at the Raptors Clippers game tomorrow night, and when Kawhi Leonard makes his long-awaited return to Toronto to pick up his championship ring, and I imagine we will both have pieces coming out of that game. So another thing to look out for, and. Uh, yeah, some other interesting stuff in the pipeline that we'll be able to talk about, I think, at a later date.
0: Cool. My end, uh, encourage people to go check out the app and check out. I just put up a story where I talked to a bunch of guys around the league who have played pro ball in Europe about their most insane or kind of funniest or just most memorable crowd experience there. It all started because opening night, Nicolo Melli just randomly mentioned that as great as the atmosphere was in Toronto, he's used to more hot environments. Because he played in Europe, and it just got me kind of thinking about the stories some of these guys have. So P.J. Tucker's in there, Goran Dragic is in there, Vucevic is in there. You got oranges thrown on the court, cell phones thrown at people's faces. Uh, some good stuff. And having
1: been there when you've talked to these guys and gotten to talk to you afterwards about the anecdotes that you got, I'm really, really excited to read this piece.
0: Yeah. They will Google your sister is one of the quotes <laughs> in there. So go go, be sure to check that out. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.